Good evening and welcome to tonight's uh, Gospel Issues seminar uh, live streamed on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, it's great to see you, great to have you with us. Um, do put your comments in and questions in the comments sections um, on the platforms and we'll look forward to hearing from you and engaging with you and trying to answer as many questions as we can. Uh, we've got a presentation tonight from Karis Mosley who is one of our top researchers um, here at Christian Concern and she specializes in the whole area of transgenderism and has been researching the origins of transgender movements in, in the UK um, for some time and has got some really insightful stuff uh, to present to us. Karis, welcome um, tonight. It's great to have you. We really appreciate your research and the hard work that you've put into this. Uh, thank, thank you, you for taking the time to prepare this presentation and to um, to do all the research, amazing research that you've done. Um, I think you said you're going to speak for about 25, 30 minutes or something, yeah. and then we'll come back and take some Q&A. And then we've got a client as well, and Andrea as well will join us and we'll answer your questions and discuss it as well. So, Karis, over to you. Thank you very much for being with us tonight. Thank you. I want to talk uh, this evening about how we got to today's transgender politics, focusing on the United Kingdom. Spiritually, a major battle has been and is being fought in people's minds and hearts over what it means to be God's creatures. I think we can characterize it as a battle of truth against lies and love against fear. Although we're going to look at the lies and the fear more this evening. We need to talk about where did transsexualism come from? Um, you can see the picture on the screen here of Adam and Eve expelled from the Garden of Eden by God. Um, it illustrates the fall, um, which was because they rebelled against God as the creator. I think we see an echo of that in the invention of this category of um, belonging to the other sex in your own mind, which is what transsexualism or transgenderism is. And there are really three key men who are responsible for inventing this idea. So we go to Germany, first of all, in the late 19th century, a man called Karl Ulrichs, he was um, a gay activist, and he claimed that he was a woman trapped in a man's body. The next character in this story is um, another gay activist from Germany called Magnus Hirschfeld. And he was very active in the 1920s during the Weimar Republic after the First World War. He coined the term transsexualism of the soul, this idea that somehow your soul, your personality, can have a sex or a gender. And he also normalized cross-dressing. And the third character in this um, early history is Harry Benjamin. He was American, he was a physician, a very eccentric man, a very perverse man. And he invited Magnus Hirschfeld to the United States in 1930 um, to know about more about his work. It was Harry Benjamin who successfully campaigned for surgery for people to change sex, so to speak. Um, and he deliberately, during, uh, in doing this, aimed to marginalize uh, mental health care, psychotherapeutic interventions for patients who said they were distressed and believed that they were in the wrong body. Controversially for uh, Benjamin, a person's sex was defined by their hormones. Um, this definition bypassed the more fundamental role of chromosomes, which is now known by modern medical scientists. And it conveniently justified him administering artificial 
cross-sex hormones, which had just been developed around that time, um, to people demanding them. And next we go on to the early history of um, Charing Cross Hospital, Denver Density Clinic. So this is post-war, post-Second World War. John Randell was a psychiatrist and he was appointed physician for psychological medicine at Charing Cross in 1950. He'd already been seeing patients since 1942 when he was a psychiatrist for the Royal Navy. He saw patients alone and it seems that he wasn't accountable to anybody. Remember that this was the early days of the NHS that had only been formed in 1948. Most of Randall's patients were male and most of them were married. In 1961, he completed an MD thesis at the Welsh National School of Medicine in Cardiff about his male and female patients that he'd seen up to that time. He recorded that many male patients of his enjoyed dressing up as teenage girls or as females a generation younger than themselves. This information was never given to the press or discussed in Parliament, because from time to time MPs would be asking in later decades about the clinic. It's also curious that Randall had a low success rate in treating patients psychologically, in other words, helping them to actually live as normal members of their sex. There could be well a reason for this. After his death, a journalist called Sally Vincent, who's also now passed away, discovered that John Randell was himself a transvestite. He was married with children, but he was a crossdresser. Maybe he wasn't that motivated to help patients in reality, enabling their problems rather than solving them. The General Density Clinic officially opened at Charing Cross in 1966 at the height of the sexual revolution. Randell started to refer his patients for surgery at secret locations in London hospitals. However, the press was told that patients were having surgery abroad. So this culture of lying was really being enforced. It's interesting that other psychiatrists may have had more insight into such patients. For example, John Ball was a young psychiatrist who completed a thesis on um, these patients in the 1960s in the UK. And he went emigrated to Australia later on in his career. And he became a geriatric or old age psychiatrist. This suggests that John Ball was an expert on psychiatric problems in relation to the life cycle of men and women. It would seem that such insight would be vital for understanding patients who are uncomfortable with being members of their sex. But on the whole, Ball has not been cited by the activists. It's John Randell they cite as their scientific authority. If we move on to how this movement started attacking marriage and the common law. John Randell's mindset was pagan and anti-Christian, but this never really gets discussed. And this is why I want to highlight it here. You can see in this picture a, a, a carving, a sort of uh, stone carving that's Greco-Roman, probably from the time after Jesus. Randell left um, scientific papers, and in one of them he wrote about um, ancient pagan religion in, during the Roman Empire. So we talk, he says this, in ancient Syria, according to Lucian, in his book De Dea Syria, which means on the Syrian goddess, the novice priests of the Galli, who were a, a religious cult at the time, 
traditionally castrated themselves with swords during the rites of the mother goddess Astarte. Then they run in the streets of the town, carrying severed genitals, their own obviously, which they threw into the doorway of any house which took their fancy. The novice obtained from the householder female clothing, women's clothing, which he thereafter wore as a fully fledged priest of this sect. Now, clearly, this is the mindset of an exhibitionist. It's a perverse mindset, and Randell seems to have approved of it and mused uh, as he went on writing about it whether this mentality had anything to teach people today in the modern era. Continuing on the fact that this was an attack on traditional Christian views of marriage and an understanding of the law in the United Kingdom. Um, it's clear that he and those around him knew that they were operating at the edge of the common law of England and Wales. So, for example, Thomas E. James was a law professor at the time at King's College London. He made it very clear that castration was prohibited in the common law. Surgery, sex change surgery, would be deemed a criminal assault, even with the consent of the patient, unless psychological therapeutic benefit coming from it could be proven. And that's where we get all this rhetoric, all this propaganda about the fact that people are supposedly happier after surgery. It's clear from these early writings um, that clinicians didn't really care about family members, including mostly wives. It tends to be that the male patients are often married, female patients are much less likely to be married. The clinicians seem to have thought they could get away with persuading family members, especially wives, to adjust to these perversions. In their conferences, which were behind closed doors, clinicians admitted that wives, for example, or partners could sue the clinic over the fact that their husbands were being considered for castration. Moving on now to just a brief overview of the early campaigning groups. The very first um, campaigning group for transgender rights in the UK was the Beaumont Society. It was founded in 1966 by three British male transvestites. They had links to a group called the Foundation for Personality Expression in the USA, which was a secret society of male cross-dressers. By the way, the picture I've got here is of this French cross-dresser from the 18th century, um, who was, uh, his name was Beaumont, and so that's why I called the Beaumont Society. He was also called the Chevalier d'Eon. Clearly he looks like a man, people used to say that he looked like a woman, but obviously this is just how these people talked among themselves to persuade each other. So the Beaumont Society lied about membership members to give the impression that there was more, um, there were more members than there were. So the first member was given the number 100 as his secret number. In fact, there were only 12 founder members. And so they grossly inflated the numbers. This is a tactic, obviously. Other early groups from Britain from the 1970s and 80s include the Self-Help Association for Transsexuals, which ran newsletters during the early 80s, and the Gender Trust. And the founder of both of these was Stephen Whittle, who was a female to male transgender person, a legal academic and a lawyer, um, and is really the great mind behind 
transsexual rights and transgender campaigning in the law in the United Kingdom. This tactic of creating lots of groups and inflating membership numbers is, I like to think of it as a kaleidoscope effect, um, where you know everything is magnified and makes it look more colorful and more varied, and it attracts more people. It's sort of there's a snowball effect there. We need to move on to talk, talking about how the activists targeted international institutions now, especially European ones. Three key institutions were targeted in 1989, the year the Iron Curtain fell, which is significant. The Council of Europe, the European Parliament, and the European Court of Human Rights. Marxists and communists targeted the European Parliament, the Council of Europe, and the European Court of Human Rights that year. They used the concept of psychological sex, this idea that your, um, your mind or your soul your personality was either male or female, regardless of your body. They got this from another early clinician I haven't mentioned, but which most of you will, um, most of you will have heard of, which is John Money. He was American. He was very involved in treating children from the 1950s onwards as well, building on the work of the three earlier activists that I mentioned at the start of the talk. But why advance this concept of psychological sex? The answer is to be able to distort the law more easily, rather than use the term gender, which wasn't really being used a lot in Europe at the time. The activists knew they couldn't advance their um, cause through means of attacking the common law um, in the UK, um, because they would have to go through the courts uh, and, and through the lower courts, uh, where more common sense would probably prevail more. Uh, it's an incoherent idea, the notion of psychological sex. And so to promote it, you have to get people who are both clever and um, believe their own propaganda. And these people tend to be at the top of institutions. So they didn't just go to Parliament because they weren't going to win there. They went to these international institutions, which enjoyed uh, novel and weird ideas. And they wanted to impose these ideas from above and make them trickle down. The precise mechanism that enabled this was that the European Parliament ordered the Council of Europe to change the jurisprudence, the legal philosophy, of the European Court of Human Rights. And also the expansion of the court to be amenable to judicial activism, so activism by judges themselves, and strategic litigation coming from the activists. So there'll be this um, working together of the judges with the activists, actually. As I'm going chronologically, I'm going to uh, jump a little bit towards the early history of the Gender Identity Development Service for Children and Adolescents in London, which also opened in 1989. The JIDS was always open to the possibility of children and teenagers growing up to be transsexual adults. Although they did and, and do do psychological treatment, it's true, um, this, this keeping the door open is actually a very big problem. Undoubtedly, it's why the JIDS has not resisted introducing puberty blocking drugs for teenagers. Um, um, something which started in the clinic uh, in the Netherlands, with which the staff were always in close contact. 
What this means is that the Jade's philosophy was always really undermining God's plan for creation, is that everybody is either male or female, we're born biologically male or female. We need to embrace that. We need parents and families and the community to embrace and promote uh, and accept that. That is central to the notion of the love of, of God towards us as creatures and how we're meant to express that. Thinking about the jids again and the evidence, which is patchy, um, data does exist on the early years, showing that a hugely disproportionate number of the children and adolescents who referred to the jids are from single parent families or the care system. A significant minority were also from ethnic minorities. The latter point has really not been explored at all in, in the debates on the issue. Like the now many gender clinics for adults um, which exist, the JIDS has never really published adequate studies of the link between fractured families or family breakdown and problems with uh, living as a member of your sex or, or cross-dressing among children and adolescents. And this is uh, obviously a serious problem now that over 30 years have passed. It would also be of interest to many listening that the well-known transgender charity and campaign group Mermaids was started in 1995 by parents of children attending Egypt and quickly became a support group. So it was always closely intertwined with it, despite what you may hear now, as there's a big culture war over the issue. Also close to some of the clinicians was Jaya's Gender Identity Research and Education Society, a group that's still around today. Uh, which is less high profile than it was in the past. And it promoted the idea of gender variance in children and adolescents, which we now know as gender identity in children and adolescents. Arguably, Jaya's was absolutely key to mermaids becoming um, uh, more influential and having a higher profile. I'm going to move back to the political and legal arena to look at how the activists were targeting Parliament. In 1992, Stephen Whittle formed Press for Change, a militant transsexual rights group. Press for Change's activism led to gains in the common law and to the Gender Recognition Act, because it was legal activism. In 1994, the Parliamentary Forum on Transsexualism was founded by Lynn Jones, a Labour MP, from Birmingham. The story here is that a constituent of hers had raised the query about the rights of male to female transsexual prisoners to be housed in women's prisons. So this is where it's all started, this problem, this debate that's now so familiar, not just in the UK, but elsewhere. Press for Change, um, sorry, the Parliamentary Forum, as well as Press for Change, successfully lobbied many MPs over the years. It was supported by the major gender identity clinicians, and it was instrumental in pushing for transsexual rights to be codified in statute in the Gender Recognition Act. We look at prisoners. In 1996, the Home Office invited activists to contribute to a new policy on transsexual prisoners. So the initiative was now coming from within the government. There was a group called the Gender and Sexuality Alliance, which no longer exists, which was involved in this campaign. And there was an activist who called himself Kate Moore. He supported moving male transsexual prisoners to women's prisons 
allowing male transsexuals into women's rape crisis shelters and supported rights for transsexual prostitutes. So although the prison policy document um, was not eventually published, and we don't know the reasons why, the die was cast for further influence and further infiltration into the prison and criminal justice systems. I mentioned strategic litigation. Well, this was also going on in the UK. So in 1999, there was a landmark case. The Northwest Lancashire Health Authority lost a court of appeal case against three activists, three men who said they were women. This judgment prohibited um, NHS trusts from writing policies which barred funding for sex change or gender reassignment surgery. Why? Because NHS trusts have started to say, we don't want to do this, it's not real medicine, the outcomes are at best unknown, these people need psychological or psychiatric help. And the Court of Appeal ruled uh, against the NHS. Since then, annual numbers for both diagnosis and surgery have shot up. What happened then? The activists went on to capture Parliament. In 2002, the United Kingdom government lost at the European Court of Human Rights in the case of Christine Goodwin. Now, the government had to allow transsexual people to change their birth certificates. Now, remember, it's one thing to say that you want to be known as a member of the opposite sex um, from now on in your life. It's another thing to falsify the past that has an effect on others, on, on public information. It's um, a big blow to families. The Goodwin who brought the case was um, a member of the Church of England. In 2004, Tony Blair's new Labour government passed the Gender Recognition Act in response to this ruling from the European Court of Human Rights, which had um, some United Kingdom-based judges, actually. Why did the government do this? It didn't have to. The government did this rather than risk further litigation by activists. They must have been afraid of multiple lawsuits to have done that. The Lord Chancellor's Department uh, made an assessment of the impact. This was before the quality impact assessments, but nevertheless, they, they did assess the impact. But why did they bother? Because they focused narrowly on the financial risks without bothering to assess the social consequences and the psychological consequences for the population at large. Where Christians have stood up, especially, for example, the Evangelical Alliance and the Christian Institute, but they were ignored, mostly. So what effect did the Gender Recognition Act have? Well, the age of patients has decreased. It used to be that patients had a midlife crisis and already they had serious psychological problems. You don't want to belittle those. Well, now there are lots more patients who are young and we could see that they're having a quarter life crisis in their mid twenties or early thirties. There's an increase in the spread of the propaganda that people are born that way, they're born in the wrong body, an insult to God as the creator, a failure to um, live up to the standard of loving, uh, being loving towards those with weaknesses, which is significant because we all have them. We all have different weaknesses. And in today's culture, many people have a very complex 
uh, not always a positive relationship to their own bodies. It's worth saying at this point that most patients who were interviewed in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, by another researcher called Brian Tully, who's a, a chartered psychologist, didn't claim to be born that way. Um, and they didn't have a history of cross-dressing when growing up. Something happened to them along the way, and he actually talks about that in, in his book on the subject. What happened? What else happened? After the Gender Recognition Act, more transsexual sex offenders campaigned for the right to enter women's prisons. Because the notion of rights obviously had been changed to whatever you think you are, they're now much more subjective and therefore malleable. Meanwhile, some other activists were quietly infiltrating the NHS and allowed to start writing policies. Perhaps with hindsight, it's important to say it looks as if nobody was really monitoring what was going on or challenging it. Another likely effect of the Gender Recognition Act, which has not been studied, is the decline in quality and accuracy of information on who is male or female. Now, the law, uh, the act became law in April 2005. And since then, certain data sets have recorded people as male or female or their gender as unknown. So, for example, NHS England data on drug use, the National DNA database, police forces, crime figures um, don't readily show if somebody has transgender status as well as being male or female. If we're talking about the perpetrator, they do, however, show victims of hate crime. So there's a one sidedness and a bias. Department for Education in England, schools exclusion data prevent duty and channel panel data. You would think that such important information needed to be recorded accurately and truthfully. This is a large-scale infiltration of the government, or capitulation, perhaps we should say at the same time. Moving on now to the Equality Act 2010, which is also very important in terms of statute law and influencing uh, the daily lives of millions of people in this country. And, uh, how people behave in the workplace and what's expected of us. Since 2010, when the Act was passed, all public sector bodies, including government departments, have had to promote equality for people with all nine protected characteristics. Um, this includes age, sex, um, pregnancy and maternity for women, um, uh, race, religion or belief, and it also includes sexual orientation and gender reassignment. Public sector bodies, including government departments, also have to promote what's called good relations between people who have these characteristics. There's been a plethora of training courses, for example. This explains why practically nobody in the public sector is critical of what we now call transgender ideology, despite the fact that it's fundamental and unprecedented attack on people's duty to tell the truth, including their duty to tell the truth in the workplace. If we just reflect on this for a minute, things like whistleblowing rely on the duty to tell the truth being more important than other, other duties. People could actually lose their job for um, going against this ideology now and have been doing so, uh, as many of our cases are showing. The other thing that's important uh, for you, the listener, to understand is that gender reassignment was sneaked into the Equality Act as a protective characteristic in schools. Now. 
if we go back to the Gender Recognition Act, it says that people have to be at least 18 to undergo surgery. That's not been amended, it's still the case. Well, it's true that some school pupils are 18 and do have that right. It's pretty obvious that including this characteristic in the Equality Act was a Trojan horse for spreading this ideology into schools. And that's what we've seen in the last 10 years, especially the last five years. So let's look more closely at those 10 years. We turn now to the years of David Cameron. Since 2010, a number of children and teens referred to the JIDS, the Gender Identity Development Service for Children and Adolescents, has shot up. And this has been especially true of girls and of course has made the press. But no fully adequate comprehensive explanation has been found for this. I do think, however, that we need to look at the role of the Equality Act and all the training that came with it. The sort of guidelines are not themselves law, but they're treated as if they were by the activists. It's too much of a coincidence when you have these two trends side by side. The activists started targeting the education sector. So, for example, the anti-bullying policies brought in by Theresa May during the coalition government were the thin end of the wedge. May was influenced by the Liberal Democrat politician Lynn Featherstone, who was a big promoter of this cause. Many of you are aware of the row over so-called trans inclusion toolkits published by some local authorities for schools. This kind of policy document was started in Brighton and Hove Council in 2013. There's also been an erosion of parental rights, and we've covered this extensively in our writing. There's also many of our cases involved, so we'll be discussing that later on in the evening. So moving on to gender identity law being proposed by the UK government. Around about 2016, people in different countries started to be very concerned that governments would pass so-called gender identity laws, allowing people to identify as members of the opposite sex or gender, even if they hadn't had any physical treatment to make them try to look like that. They would be allowed to change their gender legally by signing a declaration. Well, the social implications of this started to be felt in the USA and Canada, and later on in the UK. Some political analysts believe that Donald Trump was elected president of the USA in 2016, partly because the voters were so horrified at the Democrats promoting all of this that they'd rather anybody in anything other than the Democratic Party. In December 2016, Conservative MP Maria Miller um, tabled a private member's bill, because it was a backbencher at the time, in the House of Commons, uh, a bill, the Gender Identity Protected Characteristic Bill. And that would have allowed legal gender change. It's quite obvious to an astute observer that Maria Miller was really doing the government's dirty work. She was before that a minister for women and equalities. She wasn't just an inexperienced backbencher. And so many of us took this as a sign that we needed to wake up and to start to talk to politicians and tell them this was not acceptable. And Theresa May's government did propose such legislation in the summer of 2018, as we know but by opening a consultation and reforming the gender recognitions. By Christmas that year, the Minister for Equality, then Justin Greening, was forced to bury the consultation due to the level of public concern against the idea. It's to her credit that she actually listened to the public and to the concerns so many of us voiced. However, the idea was resurrected the next year, and again, there was huge public outcry. This time, the Government Equalities Office claimed 
there were over 100,000 responses received by the closing date in October. It's very obvious why there's public concern given what I've been saying in this talk. It's interesting there's no legal requirement for the UK government to pass such a law, even the European Court of Human Rights, which has repeatedly ruled in favour of transsexual rights activists, acknowledges that member states of the Council of Europe, which is responsible for the court, um, come under its jurisdiction, have a margin of appreciation as to how they implement these rights. So why is the government so determined? It's hard to tell, and it's a question the government needs to answer. I'm saying that because the government has not officially announced in print that it's ditching these plans. It's only been rumoured by journalists to keep on bringing up the question. As we close, uh, I've got a slide, a, a picture here of Bacchus, the Greek god of wine, um, as I talk about the mental health professional bodies. Why do I have the god of wine? Bacchus also called Dionysius. Well, he's the equivalent of Baal, the Canaanite god, mentioned in the Old Testament, um, whom the ancient Israelites idolized when they rebelled against God. And the prophets, of course, chastised them for this. Bacchus or Dionysius was a cross-dressing god and a sex-changing god. You could say that the spirit of Bacchus is what's behind this capitulation of psychiatry and of the mental health professional bodies to this transgender ideology. There's been never really been an official outcry for many of these professional bodies. In 2017, the existing so-called conversion therapy ban in the UK, many of you are familiar with this, um, was amended to include a ban on treating gender identity. All gender identities are now equal. The subtext of that, the real meaning is that the therapist or a counsellor or anybody who's deemed to be offering therapy, who should also be a pastor, um, cannot or is not allowed to offer help to somebody who wants to return to live as a member of their sex, because I think it's better to identify as, to say openly, that they're male or female. Also, another consequence um, of this ban is a loss of free speech and free exchange of ideas, of learning, among professionals, among, among those who are students of counselling and therapy. There's a lack of adequate research on those who regret undergoing this gender reassignment process. So, for example, James Caspian um, wasn't able to go ahead with his research, Bath Spa University. He wanted to interview some of these regretters. Some good news, um, over 40 clinicians have resigned from the JITS, the Gender Identity Development Service for children and adolescents. And some have spoken out, although most have remained silent. So how did we get here? That's what I started with and that's where I'm gonna end. It's fairly evident from this story. We got here by too many people believing lies, wanting to believe them for whatever motivation. And one of those motivations must be fear, perhaps more fear of man, fear of activism, fear of madness, fear of the extraordinary discomfort that comes when people try to resist and provide better psychological and spiritual solutions. So instead of fear and love of God, fear of man and a love of lies, we need to stand against the lies and the fear and for the love of God and the truth of God in this arena. Thank you.
Um, thank you, Karis. That was that was really great. Um, lots of um, incredible information there and lots of detail there. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you for all the research you've done there. There's a lot of really good information there. Um, I've got Andrea Williams as well, I think, um, on the show. Um, Andrea, great to have you with us as well. Great to be uh, um, with you. A lot of information there to digest. So I'm sure that that um, pack, that resource will be up uh, on the website uh, sometime soon because it really is um, something I think that's good for those of us that are particularly interested in this uh, to delve in deep with. Yeah, so we've got a question here, um, Pete Chris Hodge saying, if a person identifies as a member of the opposite sex, why is it just blindly accepted without medical or scientific evidence? And surely it's open to abuse by sex offenders. And I think the, the point here is, you know, we hear a lot about following the science. And of course, in coronavirus, um, the science has been emphasised very heavily here. And here is something that is actually contrary to science and contrary to common sense as well. Why do you think society is actually moving to accept this kind of stuff? Karis, maybe you first. Karis, or, can, I start, can I just say before Karis says that, I think with regard to the YouTube, there may be an issue and people will need to reload the page uh, to make to, in order to continue making comments. So um, it would be great okay. if you could do that because we'd love for you to be particularly with us in this question and answer time uh, at this point. But yes, uh, Karis, it'd be great to have your answer to that question mm -hmm. there. That's a big question. And the thing is, you know, you can do, you can try to research the, the paper trail is what I've been trying to do, the decision makers, politicians, the doctors. There, there was, there is, there are signs that, for example, family doctors early on try to resist. And it's true that the lower down the decision making chain you go, the more resistance there is, because as Tim said, there's more common sense and people are less in love with big ideas. So I think, though, the overarching answer to the gentleman is that the erosion of worship of God and Christian truth in medical ethics um, and, and in Parliament and just generally in Western society. There is no really other ad adequate answer. And that is why I think, although we've heard good and conscientious voices who are not Christians, who are speaking up in society, they never are able to quite say, you know, this business of lying and dressing and presenting yourself as somebody other than who you are is fundamentally wrong mm. you know what the bible tells us lying is wrong yeah. it's not going to help yeah anybody. yeah yeah and so, it really, and it's, it's actually quite well, a small yeah, portion of people isn't it um Karis, as well it's not a it's not like a huge movement is it really it's not like there's lots and lots of people who want to change gender or have changed gender is it i mean it's incredibly it's incredible what an influence a small portion of the population has isn't it that's true, but it has grown a lot. Um, I remember not long ago, The Guardian had done some freedom of information requests and produced a graph. They didn't produce all of the responses they had, but just looking and trying to guess from that graph, I estimate between 20 and 30,000 people have actually gone to a gender clinic since Charing Cross opened. And that's right. over, you know, last half century or more now. Right. Um, so it, it has, but it has gone up and up and up um, over the decades. Um, and it's been quite deliberate. It's, it's, it's the power of suggestion. And of course, now, because it's in the mass media, it's suggested to everybody um, mm. through social media, which is why you have it among teams. And it's now, of course, policy. That, that's the difference. And that's why we're here in a way to become this school's policy and so on and so forth. Yeah. And so despite being quite a small number of people, its significance is massive. And yeah. I think, Karis, you've hit 
the nail on the head there in, in many ways by keep on rooting us back to this lie against the truth. But when we normalize a lie and when culturally the lie becomes the truth, the lie is replaced for the truth within society, this power of suggestion that you can be something different, then you end up in this confusion and chaos and in a world that's increasingly confused and uh, chaotic around human identity around being made, the notion of being made in the image of God, male and female, of immense worth. The Genesis 1 denial, when, yeah. that, when that falls, when that tumbles away and there is no notion of what truth is, what gospel truth is, what it is to be made with a purpose, male and female in the image of God, then you end up with this kind um, of well, chaos, I repeat that word again. But sadly, again, we're hitting on it there again, Karis. One of the things that is concerning in this history that you've shown us is that once upon a time, it was a sort of thoroughly middle-aged crisis, yeah. mainly amongst men. That was certainly in any event what was catalogued. Mm -hmm. But now many of the instances we hear um, are of young women in teenage years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, being confused about who they are. And as as I've watched, as I've been watching this issue over the past 20 years, um, it used to be the, the situation that we'd be hearing a lot about eating disorders, and they're still there, of course. Yeah. Mm. But now we're placed in our senior schools. Uh, you've, you hear more about gender identity um, change. Mm -hmm amongst girls uh, mm. than eating disorders. I'm not saying eating yeah. disorders at all, but that was not something that we were hearing about even five years ago in the same in the same way. Mm. And so there is definitely a there's been a shift. But as you again, as you've been saying, Karis, what we have is a lack of data yeah. and yeah. and a shutting down of those that want to study and analyze these data and an inability to access it properly. So James Caspian, who wanted to look at the trans regretters, was permitted, uh, was prohibited from doing so from Bath Spa University. So, you know, it because it's not it's not strong when all we can push push is anecdotes. We have no. to begin to collect the data. No. But if a system is caught up in a lie, if a system is caught up in um, a situation whereby they're not really wanting to get to the bottom to the to get to the truth, then yeah. we end up again with more confusion. Yeah, Andy Sanders here is asking a good question. What are the statistics for people who have detransitioned? And well, and that's a difficult one, isn't it? Because they've been banned from researching it, right, Karis? There aren't is the short question. I mean, when when one asks, we're told that oh, they're on their way or not yet, or there's always an excuse. Um, and, and there are many of us who've been asking those questions, you know, under freedom of information. It's not good enough. Uh, and I've heard activists uh, deny that there should be that information because there are so few of these people. We, we don't know. Uh, and because this is contrary to medicine, I mean, of course, there's an attempt to cover up, really. Um, and I don't know how you would get at the information. Uh, I think, well, I have my ideas, but um, Andrea is right at the moment we're stuck we have anecdotes and individual stories, and which are very, very important. Is what it, in one said, it's all about the individual and his or her journey to, to back to health. But why we need data, which perhaps isn't appealing, obviously, is yes. 
is we need to see the big patterns. For example, mm. are there more mm. people in large cities where there is such a clinic? Probably yes. Stick a gender clinic somewhere, more people will identify as something rather than turn up. Is mm. that simple? Mm. Mm. You know? mm. And can I just say tonight that if there are people who are who are confused, who are struggling with their gender um, identity, then we do know uh, people at Christian Concern who can really help people help them to talk talk through these issues. And there are also amazing groups such as Core Issues Trust and the IFTCC network that um, runs across runs across the world. Really, um, again, I would be great if um, the Christian Concern um, backstage, the Christian Concern team, could put those websites um, on. Um, on on the live stream comments here, so that those organisations and uh, people can get in contact with those places. Well, and the other thing is these um, the stories when they do come out are very very powerful, aren't they? Like very you know, powerful. I, I was, very you know, powerful. Peter Benjamin's story again. Put a link up of that. Um, yes. Got a video of him telling his story on our website. Um, it's it's such a powerful story, and you know if you've got people who are questioning this, show them these stories. You know, you know they they regret the surgery. They say, why did anybody ever agree to 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 do this to me um and so on so i think it's again, what comes up time and time again is when you listen to people like this who regret what they did at whatever stage they stopped is mm. that when you would say did anybody ask you would you like to live as a member of your sex no nobody did there's a lack of curiosity in, in the mm. in, in the questioning of the professionals now that is not right normally you know a, a mental health professionals or whoever it is should be yeah. interested enough it's like going to a doctor for physical um, symptoms. They should be interested enough to find out more about you um, yes. and not just yes. give you the answers that you want. And so this yes. is clinical yes. negligence, really. Yes. So we've got Nigel and Sally Rowe, I think, on the line here as well. Um, Nigel and Sally, welcome to you um, from the Isle of Wight. Uh, it's great to have you uh, and uh, important clients on this subject. I'm going to get the guys to show a video that explains your story and then people can ask you questions and we'll talk or have a chat with you about it. But thanks for joining us tonight. And uh, perhaps the folks backstage can just uh, play the video of their story now um, to explain. When our son told us about what had happened in school, we were shocked. And because we had had no consultation about this, we were not aware of it. So the first thing we decided to do was to actually go into school and just talk with the teacher and the head teacher. And what we found quite concerning was that they kind of said, well, if, it's, if a child wants to do that, we just have to accept it. And if we don't accept it, I could lose my job. We feel that it's, it's not right to, um, to push this on children, to, to make out that there is no gender, because there is, there's clearly a difference between boys and girls. I think you ask most parents who have a, a son and a daughter, they'll say that there's a great difference between them in, in character, uh, in, in traits of being male and female. We brought our children up obviously to respect everyone and show Christian love to everyone and how they should treat boys and girls both with respect. Um, so it's confusing for them then to come across uh, who they was a boy with a certain name is now a dressed as a girl with a girl's name. I know from speaking to other parents that other children were confused and took a while to come round to the idea that their friend who was a boy is now dressing as a girl. And the same yeah, situation and the same happened with same situation younger. happened with, 
with a younger son at the age six, of six. At the age of six, and again in his class, the child and just said, was well, a daddy. I'm confused. Yeah, the child came home and said, "I'm confused. I'm I don't confused. understand." And we never really taught him that word, so that mm. really concerned us, and then we realised that we then had uh, an issue here. The sad thing in, in this situation is that you know we we, we would be labelled as transphobic and all the other uh, phobic rhetoric that you hear but actually that's simply not the case. We see that there needs to be a, a different way of uh, addressing this. The school environment is not the right place to be addressing this. And our concern is that if it is in the school forum there is the danger of bullying. Um, there's also the issue of toilets and there's been a recent study done with sharing toilets and, and the boys and girls were generally no we don't want to share that was their their heartfelt um, thing there's there's lots of issues that that need to be thought about and consulted with so that it is it is treated and done in the correct way in a good way that is is going to be for the benefit of all the children concerned not just the transgender child but also the other children that attend the school Great. So, uh, Nigel and Sally, thank you for joining us again. It's great to see you. So, how are your kids now? And uh, and just tell us, you know, how's your family and how's how's things there with the school and so on and around your area in, in El White? Um, we're great. I mean, the boys are now uh, eleven and nine, so they grow up very quickly. And um, we now homeschool. Um, and we love it, um, and we can see um, they our boys love homeschool too. Um, and we live in a great place, you know, by the by the sea, so we're able to do a lot of water sports and things like that. And they they're enjoying the homeschool and they're enjoying their their time with their parents at home. It's a great environment for them. Um, and yeah, we feel very blessed with that. So they're a lot happier. Um, a lot happier. Really and I think what what a lot of people were shocked about here is that. A six-year-old, a six-year-old boys, I and mean, it happened twice in your school as well. Uh, yeah. You know, a six-year-old, um, and the, and the children were told you have to call him her or her him or whichever way it is around. Um, effectively, lie about who this person is, and they can't change their gender till they're eighteen. The law and so on. It, it's it is crazy, isn't it? And and were were other parents upset as well? Yeah, uh, yes, and they had children coming home, you know, distressed and upset and confused as well. So, but no one else, a lot of people just didn't want to say any, anything. We were the only person, people that seemed to raise our concerns with the head and the teacher just to say what's going on, because there was no consultation. It just happened. Um, we were never advised or spoken to at all. Um, mm. it, it just... So again, we're living in a situation where there's this kind of folklore where a school is told um, that it needs to implement these policies and begins to impl implement these policies around uh, an individual situation, around uh, a, a child who has gender confusion. Rather than thinking about the rest of the children in the school, it, it, it changes the whole of the policy of the school to suit that the first child there and then a second child in that particular situation, but thereby confusing the whole of the school, but to challenge. And this is where I think, you know, with the viewers here this evening, what I want to say is, you know, 
stand with Nigel and Sally Rose, stand with those uh, men and women that stand on this issue. Because although many are confused by it, many, almost everyone is frightened to make the stand. Mm. And we found this because Nigel and Sally were brave enough. They were the first couple that spoke out publicly on this issue. And we know at Christian Concern that there have been many other situations where children as young as five and six are transitioning in schools, where school, where mermaids have come into the schools and where governors have lost, if we remember the case of John Parker, that governors have lost their positions just for challenging the policy and the remaining, gov gov the remaining We've governors. We've got a story um, here yeah. on, on YouTube. Somebody's yeah. commented, Catherine Summers saying, I was supply teaching in Blackpool school, asked to look after a group of girls in a gym class when I was there, a boy was in the changing room, so I asked the teacher what he was doing there. She said, he's a girl, as if that was the end of the matter, and I was very disturbed. Um, so, you know, this, this, this kind of thing is happening, isn't it? You know, in, and, and where does the law stand? Stories, by the way, please get, us, get in touch. If this is a situation that's occurring with you, because one of the things that we need to do in order to resist this, and Nigel and Sally are definitely at the forefront of this with the with the challenge that they are making to the school and it's and it's hard to collate evidence it's hard to bring the evidence together but the sort of challenge that they are uh, making is a challenge to turn over the policies that are currently being implemented in the schools if you have similar situations in your schools if policies policies are written whereby children are tr are socially transitioning then please get in touch because we need to bring a cohort of these cases we need to have a number of people that are saying truth needs to prevail in our school our children need to be protected you know it is an amazing thing that Nigel and Sally have taken their children out of school and that these young their young sons are really thriving but my heart breaks for the children that are left there mm -hmm. for the children that may still be struggling for the policies that become the norm uh, you know again it's it's truth being turned on its head so please if you have any information about this do get in touch with us i think yeah. one of the i wanted to say was one of the big problems i've noticed now i'm looking back over the time is obviously this narrative has been so pushed in the media uh, that, that it's a positive thing um but the saddest part of it is is that many churches or christian institutions have no understanding of it or, or even actually against other christians who are making a stand and this is one of the biggest problems that the church needs to understand what is really going on and get themselves educated in this whole thing um, the problem is, to speak, is the church meant to stand on truth and i don't think the church now understand what the truth is anymore yeah. There's a reason for that, which is that the major activists in the UK come from the churches. Yeah. Uh, and that, that is the reality. Some of the people are named, they, they are in the so-called mainline churches who are completely corrupted, many of them, and they've infiltrated. Uh, and um, and yes, so that's not well understood. I think when we think about um, divisions about this and other issues, a lot of them actually started with the corruption in the churches we can't just complain about oh society or the world out there it's not that simple mm. um, and this is it you know i mean if the church itself or if what the world views as the people that are um we are meant to look to to speak biblical truth then actually say have transgender priests transgender vicars 
put them into elevate them into positions um, within the church, promote them within the church, put them onto chat shows, become so that they become minor Christian celebrities within the circles, then it actually makes the witness to truth for those of us that would speak still harder. So you have those that are deliberately speaking. This, this is a Church of England school, is it not as well, Nigel and Sally? That's right. Church of school. Yeah. And, yeah. and you complain you complained to the diocese about it, did you not, as well? Yeah, yeah you contacted yeah. them. They're totally opposed to us in every way. It was shocking, really. Shocking. So the diocese were like, yes, all these six-year-olds should lie about who this person is. That's basically what they said, effectively? Uh, yeah, and even to the point that if your children don't use the, same, the correct pronoun, they would be deemed, and we as parents would be deemed transphobic. I mean, the diocese the said that. Old if they get the wrong pronoun. pronoun. I mean, it's just it's the whole thing. The whole thing is, is an absolute fan. It's a fantasy. And you're right. Mm -hmm. it, you're, effectively, what they're asking us to do is, is uh, we're telling our children to, to lie. Yeah. Um, yes. and, it, it's, and if you don't, you're not being pastoral. That's the extraordinary thing. Yeah. Because they label at you, Nigel and Sally, you're not at all pastoral. By raising this issue, you're not at all pastoral. <laughs> don't care you're phobic and, and 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 you are the ones that get pushed aside for trying to make a stand for beauty and truth and goodness and wholeness and healing and beauty and care within your school and the shocking thing is that in that situation the church rather than uh, will not embrace it doesn't did not come in there and embrace the truth and stand with you but mm. rather left left you isolated. Can I say, do you ever regret doing that, however? Do you ever, you know... Well, people have asked us, said, after all that happened and what, what you've been through and being obviously highly unpopular, would you do it again? And you know what? We said we would do it again. Because, you know, being a Christian isn't about having an easy life. The scripture says that you will be persecuted if you stand for truth. Jesus said, you know, remember, though, when they hated you, they hated me first. And that goes with the territory. Um, the most I understand most Christians are in fear to make a stand for truth, but that's the that's the price of being a follower of Christ. We have to accept that you will be persecuted for standing for the truth, but uh, it's worth it and it's wonderful. And I'll tell you one thing: we find it's amazing how God blesses. Our marriage is so blessed. Our boys are so blessed. They're so happy. We found God's providence in so many things in our lives. Absolutely, more, um, more than more sense and more, more joy, sense, yeah. more joy, and even, more peace. It, but it doesn't make sense, incredible. even though we're 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 still despised um, yeah. by the community. Um, so it's yeah, it's it's yeah. it's part of the territory of being a, a true believer in Christ. I have to say, can I also say on that that you know, we we you know we just uh, the Christian Concern family, as you know, we, I hope you know just how much you're loved. Uh, by, by us for making this stand because we we see the cost you know we see the cost that um, we see what it takes and it is also our joy and our privilege to stand with you um, as you live out the consequences in your community for 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 for, sta for, for standing I mean they know you were so heavily involved weren't you in the community you were so heavily involved in terms of bringing the school assemblies, organising local festivals. So they know um, your love, and don't they, for, for, and your love for all the children in the school. Mm. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So what would your advice be then, um, maybe Nigel Salo, maybe Andrea, to, to parents um, who have children in schools where 
this kind of issue is coming up or, or even to teachers um, who are faced with a child who wants to change gender and so on, what would your advice be to them? My, uh, my honest opinion is, I think we're getting to a point in the school system where actually Christian parents should really start thinking about homeschooling now because the, the agenda, the narrative is being pushed to such an extent that they're forcing Christian parents uh, down this road of you know the, the whole issue of transgenderism and and sexual ethics homosexuality all those things which we obviously as Christians believe that marriage is between one man one woman for life those things now longer are no allowed are not allowed to be taught and so if if this agenda is being pushed so hard I think Christian parents often have no no option really if they don't want to be indoctrinated with a secular uh, humanism agenda they have to homeschool um, and you know, I think if more Christian parents did it, there'd be a greater, bigger community that where we can support one another. But uh, obviously, I know the government wouldn't. Uh, as well, do you know, we've all been forced into it the last uh, ten <laughs> weeks or something, haven't we? You know, you know, my my kids are uh, learning at home, or the one, yeah. the one that's still in school age, and um, and uh, getting lessons from the school to complete yeah. and uh, certainly hasn't got um, this kind of thing to deal with at the moment and uh, maybe God's doing something there with that as showing us that homeschooling isn't quite so bad as we might have thought it was or quite so fearsome as we might have thought it was. Can I say one of the things that's really important about all of this and uh, as we see um, that Karis's big point which is lies versus truth, fear versus love, is that as Christians, as people that really love the Lord Jesus Christ, when the Lord gives us our children, we need to keep our children safe in his knowledge and in his truth. Mm. And we can't just as uh, the church or as, uh, as Christian parents hand them across to a state ideology, which is increasingly where we're at mm. in our schools. So either we have to be so in positions whereby within the schools, whereby we're shaping the culture of the school, yeah. or we as the church need to be starting our own schools we need to be homeschooling starting our own schools we really need to believe that we can because we need to raise up a next generation that's fearless that knows genesis one that knows that they're born male and female that knows um that the place for life and beauty and nurture uh, you know, the family starts with a marriage between one man and woman all of these things are the sort of things that we need to be teaching this next generation and to just hand them over this idea that we can hand over our four-year-olds and our five-year-olds and our six-year-olds to the state ideology which would say five-year-olds you can change your gender uh or, or that can teach you that there are all sorts of relationships which are entirely normal sexual relationships which are entirely normal that sex is permitted out with the bond of uh, um, a marriage between one man and woman these are not things we we put our children in the school for six hours, seven hours a day, and expect them to come come out without being impacted by that, or mm. thinking that you know a half an hour of Sunday school is going to change how they think, but it can't. Mm. So we've got um, so we need to, to really be addressing that if we want a next generation that really loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Yeah, and um, I think there's scope here for remote learning and and Christian remote learning to be set up and. Christian schools to be set up, which combines some aspects of remote learning as well, potentially, because we've learned how to do that. We've been forced into it through the lockdown, haven't we? And forced to spend uh, more time with our families. 
What what would your advice be to churches though? How do, how do you think churches can respond to this whole transgender agenda? Maybe Karis, what's your view on that? What's your thinking on that? I think um, churches need to build a culture of thankfulness to God as the creator. Um, because when I spoke about rebellion against God at the beginning, it was all about the fall and churches need to accept Genesis as history. That's the bottom line. I wouldn't have said that 15 years ago, but I say it now. The churches that don't stand on Genesis 1 to 11 as true history are the ones that have capitulated or stayed silent. There are people in those churches who are very concerned, um, but you know they, they don't understand the mind of Christ on Genesis in the Old Testament. Um, and then to show the culture, the life mm. that comes from that, mm. show it for mm. develop training, share testimonies of healing, uh, you know, because they do exist. We, you know, one does meet and talk with these mm. people. Um, and, and they need to be bold and courageous. And for that, you need independent financing of the church, you know, to be distinct from the states in every way. Yes, but thankfulness to God, uh, gratitude mm. to God is central to the Christian life anyway. You know. Yeah, yeah. And somebody puts earlier on the comments, um, trans rights are human rights, a very simplistic slogan. But what, what would your response be to that, Karis? Um, that, that kind of slogan that we guess all right. the time from people. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that slogan actually encapsulates the, what I said about the institutions, although it's, I think it's an American slogan, but it, it's the same mentality, which is that um, human rights are based on just self-expression of what you are in your mind or your feelings. Um, right. And of course, there is a right to self-expression, but it's not absolute, and no rights are completely absolute above all others. Um, in reality, people with these problems, they belong to their sex and they have God-given dignity and rights as members of their sex. But because these false ideas have been circulated uh, and suggested to them, that dignity and, and sometimes the right to live as a member of your sex has been eroded. And you think that so many people with these problems have come from fractured or abusive backgrounds, have been humoured and, and basically when they were in a low point in their lives, being talked into um, this process of gender reassignment, they need to regret it. That is actually an abuse of their sex-based rights. Yeah, yeah. And somebody was asking earlier, because you mentioned about the pressure from European institutions, um, yeah. Karis, whether leaving the EU, um, when we finally do, um, whether that would make a difference, so that will help um, us be independent in this and form our own laws in this, is that right? It would be easy to say yes to that, but I think the answer is no, it's not the end of the story because this, these ideas are deeply entrenched now in the government, in levels of government in the UK. They're there at the UN, and the UN is less accountable than the EU or the Council of Europe because, you know, mm -hmm. we have elected politicians sent to the European Parliament and our MPs go to the Council of Europe's uh, assembly, but there's no equivalent with the UN. Um, and, and so that's, that's a bit of a problem. I'm starting to wonder whether it's related to the Istanbul Convention on Domestic Abuse Against Women, because when you read that, and that's a Council of Europe treaty that Britain is on the road to ratifying, um, it actually, the definition of women is completely fudged by this notion of gender. Um, and I'm quite concerned about that. Um, and I think that's why there are some countries in Europe that are starting to say, we're not going to have the Istanbul Convention because there's an agenda behind it. Um, mm -hmm. which is not just about protecting women, it's re redefining men and women. So, but I don't have an answer. I think the government should answer that question mainly, actually. Um, and so I, we're, not, we're now not finished yet. No, I don't think that uh, 
Brexit will mean that this ideology uh, goes away. I think, as you say, it's firm. It's all it's already there in practice and law follows practice. And so uh, we need to be exposing um, what is going on. We not need more people to stand courageously against it. For I fear that if they don't, we're going to see more and more human casualties. I mean, I think just as I spoke earlier about a number of the young girls coming through, I think some of those really sad stories, those transition regret stories of women in their 20, in their mid to late 20s, very often uh, this all again seems to be a pattern of young women taking the hormones, having double mastectomies, chest binding for a number of years, double, double mastectomies, having hormones that lower their voice and then realizing we hear so many of these stories with the detransitioners that they wouldn't it didn't essentially it didn't didn't take away the confusion i remember speaking with pete benjamin he's got his own um detransitioners group now on, on the internet but i remember speaking with him and i said what did it feel like immediately afterwards euphoric how long did that last for and he said 30 minutes <laughs> I mean, actually, it was like in the in the secret of his self, it, and it's and the, and the secret of self. There is still this aching hole to be known, of course, by God, who knows the true identity and can heal the hurt of all these people that are confused, and also the the, the hurt the society would foist upon them because of our current confusion and our current practice, and the law is going to follow the practice unless we raise a movement unless we raise a voice and that is what Nigel and Sally have been seeking to do that is what Karis and Tim seek to do daily um, in their work and also of course the work of core issues IFTCC and those that are coming out and speaking can I say that again you spoke Karis so beautifully about Genesis and not denying Genesis and Nigel put the challenge to the church and to us speaking clearly on this issue. I always go back, perhaps on all issues, um, but to uh, Colossians 1, uh, verse 15, where it says this, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers, authorities all things have been created through him and for him just imagine that we're all created uh, for him through him and for him he's before him and in him all things hold together for god was pleased to have all his fullness dwell and in him and through him to rest so in jesus all things can be reconciled whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Peace can be made through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is a glorious good news message because Jesus, the son, is the image of the God, of, of God and he was there at the point of creation. And through his, the shedding of his blood, so there is peace, so there is reconciliation, so there is an understanding of who you are, healing and hope. This is glorious good news, a message that should be shouted from the hilltops unashamedly, unabashedly. This is a message that we need to be given to our children. Just think, we've got all these schools that have Christian in their title. 
So Andre, where are we where are we going with uh, helping Naj and Sally or highlighting what's happened what's happening in we, these primary schools? We have been we it's been um, two two years, hasn't it, to Nigel and Sally? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it'd be three years in September. Nearly three years, nearly two and a half years, and we but we have um, we have collated some really good evidence. Um, we've got created some really um, some expert evidence and we are ready we have not gone away and we are going to be launching uh, a case uh, around Nigel and Sally's situation around the policies in school so we are a little bit like Karis um, showed us the, the the journey of the trans movement to get to this point where there is activism within parliament there is activism with, with within the law. Well, we are. What we are going to say is, when all of this is going on, we have a real life situation here, and we're going to bring a case um, in order uh, to challenge the government's position and challenge the school's position with regard to this policy that they are implementing out with strictly the law. It's a poli it's policy implementation. So, so the idea, Andrea, is to say that a young child should not be allowed to just choose what gender they are from one day to the next. Yeah, they, they should have to abide by school uniform uh, policies and according to the gender which they are, the sex which they are, and, um, and other people should refer to them according to that. And basically that's in line with the law anyway. So it's kind of crazy for a six-year-old for the school to be saying to a six-year-old, you can choose whatever gender you are and everyone else has to go along with that and lie about who you are. That, that's the idea behind the case, is it? But well, really, and also to talk about because what happens is you end up with a coercion. You you end up with uh, the coercion of the many. Teachers 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 end up being punished unless they accept the agenda. Parents are punished. School governors are punished. So there needs mm. to be freedom to resist this ideology um, mm. within within the schools. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I noticed Charlie Allison there saying, "Do we have a document that can help people writing SRE policies?" Uh, we do have, we do have uh, one of those. Maybe um, somebody backstage can put something up about that. We have, we have put some stuff out about how to do these policies, and we are really encouraging people to object to the new SRE um, regulations that are coming in September. Um, the well, the new grant object is that um, you, the school has to run a consultation. And with coronavirus, no consultations have happened. So you could write to your school and say, um, when are you planning to do this consultation? Because you have to do it before introducing uh, these things and everyone needs to be cons consulted about it. And do read our stuff about that on the website because the schools are not required to teach LGBT stuff at primary school level. Um, they're encouraged to by the government, but they're not required to. And you can ask your school um, and suggest that they shouldn't teach that stuff to very young children. So, um, are there any more, any more questions or points that people want to make here? Um, has coronavirus changed this at all, Karis? Uh, you know, the, the whole sort of lockdown thing, and obviously there's a gender-specific aspect to coronavirus as well. Men are much more prone to it, biological men. Has this, has this changed it at all? Has this changed people thinking at all? Well, um, Public Health England was meant to do rapid reviews, meant to be published around about now, I think, uh, about the effect of your sex and ethnicity and so on, other characteristics on uh, vulnerability to the virus and, and response to it. So 
Um, however, Public Health England is a body that's also been quite keen to promote transgenderism. So we shall see. I, I haven't seen that document yet. And, um, but in general, what's happened is um, gender clinics, and you know, <clears throat> I've not been able to see people in person, obviously. Um, gender reassignment surgery has not been going on. Um, administration of cross-sex hormones has not been done. Um, and that's a good thing. And, and I think that raises an interesting question with both children and adults. What do these people do when they're not given this quick fix? For some people, I, I expect they will be detransitioning um, because they will have space, because they'll be confined at home um, mm. and we'll have to think things through. Uh, and it's tricky, of course, because with some people, it will be a good experience, relatively speaking, to be at home, perhaps with family or with other people in the household. For others, it will be a cruel reminder of, you know, the cause of their problems, because perhaps those closest to them. Mm. And, you know, the lockdown isn't fair on us in that sense, psychologically, obviously, it's, it's indiscriminate. Yeah. Um, but I do think it, it I, I expect it has some kind of psychological effect. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, that's been a really great um, time. Thank you, Karis, so much for your um, wisdom and expertise and research there. Thank you, Nadja and Sally, for your stand. Very, really, really powerful. I'm sure many people have been inspired uh, listening to your stand and what you've done um, on this on this video. And Andrea, your passion as well. Um, very inspiring. Thank you, everyone, for joining us um, on Facebook or YouTube. Do follow us. Um, and like us, and uh, we'll look forward to chatting with you again uh, very soon. I think we've got another one of these coming up in a week or two's time. And uh, we're, also, we're also live on Friday lunchtimes, and you can catch up on YouTube anyway. But um, it's great to see you all, and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you.